This is part 21 in our series of a life of worship through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, Saul's life, David's life. And as I called this morning's message, Untamable, we're going to talk a little bit about God this morning, uh, quite a bit about God this morning, and I want to share a few thoughts. Uh, one of the most important life lessons that we can learn and embrace, not just know, but own, is that God is God and we are not, yeah? You've heard me say that probably a million times. It, it, not just in a way that says God can tell me what to do, although that's important, but even more so that God is not like us in the sense that he's not just a better version of a human. We, we tend to reduce God in our minds to, wow, I'm kind of a nice guy, God's a little nicer. That, that's not God. God is actually other in all quality and kind than we are. Our view of God is too low. It is dramatically too low, in, in my opinion. Um, here, here's a simple statement. Less impressive things don't command worship. Let me, let me say it a different way. When something is impressive to you, you actually have to restrain worship of it. Here's an analogy. Let's say uh, you all heard of the, uh, the concept of idolizing someone. Well, what does idolizing someone mean? It actually means to worship them, to constantly promote praise towards them and a high view of them in your mind. We all wrestle throughout our lives with idolization of different things. Let's imagine a new relationship. You're completely locked in on that person. It's all you think about. And you come back to church and you actually get a check in your spirit. Because you're thinking, I have now placed them more important than they should be ahead of God. Things that are impressive to you automatically draw you to worship. We actually have to restrain worship. The reason why that's important in our conversation is because if we were impressed by God, worship would be much more natural. If you're not impressed by God, it's very hard to drum up. And the key issue is either God is impressive or he is not. If he's impressive, why aren't we impressed? And we've talked about that throughout this year, that it may be that we're not seeing him appropriately. But we certainly have too low of a view. Um, Along the same lines, I was uh, asked by a friend of mine to answer a question on email. I do a lot of that, answering different questions. And to give you an idea, one of the things that we're working on is creating for this uh, by the uh, end of the year, maybe launching into the new year, that I would be able to put up a database of all the questions that I've answered, which there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them for you to be able to have a searchable database to look through and go, well, what has is, what is he ever taught on this? Um, I was asked a brilliant question by a friend of mine. Uh, she wrote in and she said, uh, I have a person that I'm engaging with about God, and she made this statement, and it sounded blasphemous. So I don't know how I should ask this of you, but is God a narcissist? I thought, well, that's a darn good question. Why is it a good question? Well, we're, this is a year of worship. And what we say is, God demands worship of himself. Right? I mean, that's a fair question. You've got to now move a little forward with that. Jesus Christ 
said, you need to worship me, and talked about how everyone worships him, even the angels, and God commands us to worship him. Well, that, that's odd. If we did that, we would have a bit of a God complex, right? So is God a narcissist? Well, first of all, let's break it down. What's a narcissist? Um, I don't know how good you are at Greek mythology. I had to go brush up on it myself, right? Because I remember studying it in school and going, wow, this is really kind of stupid. But anyway, uh, it's intriguing how concepts were told in story form. That actually is brilliant. Uh, so Narcissus, according to mythology, was a hunter that was absolutely stunning in how handsome, and they define him as beautiful. And men and women alike fell in love with him. Uh, everybody thought that he was the most grand thing they'd ever seen in the world. And they would always pursue him, and he would turn them all down because nobody was good enough for him. Uh, after hurting enough people, one of the other fake goddesses, uh, nemesis, if you've ever heard of that phrase, if you always go, well, that's my arch nemesis, right? Well, that's where it comes from. Nemesis decided to lure him to go into a pool of water and see his own reflection. He had never seen himself before. He looked into the pool reflection, fell in love with himself instantly, and could not dare to part with himself, and he died there. That's the whole story. Okay, from that, we have now moved it forward, and we use it in modern-day language. All right, so I looked at the um, absolutely uh, inerrant website, Wikipedia, and... And it said, uh, narcissism is inflated self-importance. Inflated self-importance. In a group setting, it denotes elitism and indifference to the plight of others. And in psychology, it is unhealthy self-absorption. All right? Well, then I went to an actual dictionary. And in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's defined as someone whose view... Actually, it defined it as egotism, which made me have to go look up egotism. I hate when they do that. It defined as the concept where individual self-interest is your actual motive for all action. You only do what benefits yourself. Um, or excessive concern for oneself with or without exaggerated feelings of self-importance. Okay, so let's talk about that. Is God a narcissist? If he's demanding worship of himself at all times, can we classify him as a narcissist? Well... No. Well, first one, does he have a sense of inflated self-importance? Well, I don't know, when the whole world does revolve around you? Is it... Can you, can you have an inflated sense of... If I'm not here, everyone dies. Well, that's it's pretty clear. I, think it's, I don't think it's inflated at all. I think it's rather actual. So, no, it, it's not an inflated sense of self-importance. It's an, actu an accurate an appropriate sense of self-importance. Um, number two, it's, in every definition, it always suggests a selfishness. Yet God, by definition, is love, and love is others-focused. So, no, that's not appropriate. Um, and then three, we have our existence through God. If God shuts down worship, we die. This is a part that we don't understand very well about worship. 
Worship keeps us alive. We look at it as very selfish. Why would God ask us to do this? Why would... Because he's allowing us to live and have purpose and meaning. If God shuts down our ability to see him as he is, if he shuts down our ability to engage with him appropriately, we shrivel and lose all meaning. It's very important that God reveals himself to us, and it's very important for him to allow us to worship. But since he's the only one that knows how it works, he is responsible for telling us what the motive should be and the method. Can we all agree on that? I said, Lance, I don't understand why you're doing this. It all seems pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Okay, if you do not understand this concept, the story we're about to read will completely wreck your theology. That's the problem. We're going to read a story that will twist your mind out. And if you think about it inappropriately, it will distort your theology. Because it's so bizarre. It's not something that we are used to engaging with. And it's not something we are comfortable with at all. So we must understand worship at its deepest core. Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. Simply put, for our practical purposes here on earth, as worshipers, God wants to be worshipped as he wants to be worshipped. That's it. Now, I've already given you all the reasons why. Because it's necessary for our life and development and transformation and health and he's the giver of all life, right? We went through all that. But bottom line, God wants to be worshipped as he wants to be worshipped. You have to lock that in. He defines the rules because if you don't do it right, in an inappropriate manner, bad things happen, and he will not allow that to occur. All right? At least long term. All right, so why don't we turn our Bibles to 2 Samuel 6, page 258, if you haven't turned there already. And let me give you a little recap on where we're at in the story. It's been a couple weeks since we talked about David. Uh, the last time we were together, we realized that God kept his promise to David. That after all this time, he said that David was going to be the king over all Israel, and he finally became the king over all Israel. And he chased the Philistines and kicked them out of the nation and put them back in their little section. Remember that? And David was trying to set up a new way of doing things. He took over from Saul, who had ran the nation for 40 years. David is now about 43 He's now getting into his reign, and he's trying to lay a very solid foundation of leading the nation in a very different capacity. That's where we pick up the story. Now, one thing that you also might want to jot down on your notes is that this exact same story, chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, is told also in Chronicles. But it's actually told in three chapters. So chapters 13, 15, and 16, you're going to want to go back and read those because if you prepped for this weekend by reading Samuel, you're still missing a big chunk of it. I'm going to add that into the message today. So where I deviate from reading the passage with you, I'm inserting the Chronicles account. So you're going to be reading wherever you're at, pause right there, keep your finger there because I'll get back to the next word, and I'll insert all the Chronicles pieces, then we continue on, all right? That's how it's going to work. So let's go ahead and pray for the word and ask that God would reveal himself to us today. Heavenly Father, we again walk into your word, the very speaking of your mouth about history, life, and reality. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would guide us to understand what you want us to know. 
Lord, we want to change. We want to be what is pleasing to you. We want to see you rightly. But we don't know how. And when we do know how, we are rebellious and don't do it. I just ask that whatever it takes, Lord, would you guide us to worship you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It says this. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. There were 30,000 of them. Who were they? Chronicles tells us. The commanders, the leaders. And he said to them, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel that they may be gathered to us. Then let us again bring the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. That's an interesting statement let's bring back the ark of the covenant to worship god rightly because we didn't seek the ark of god during the whole reign of saul how long did saul reign just talked about it 40 years why didn't saul consider or consult or bring the ark back it doesn't say in the bible what would be your guess i have a guess you don't have a mic so we'll use mine okay so I believe that he did not consult the ark because it wasn't necessary. It, it wasn't useful. He didn't think it was a big deal. Because if it was a big deal, he would have utilized it, right? Can we all be fair on that? I mean, at the bottom of all our decision-making processes, we're going to do what's super important, right? And if we don't do it, it's probably not super important. Okay, so Saul did not consult the Ark of the Covenant or bring it there in order to engage with the presence of God in that way because it was not useful. Well, was it useful? David seems to try to start out that way, like bring the Ark back, it's super important. Well, is it super important or not? Well, not in Saul's way of living. See, Saul lives like us. Saul looked out and said, why would I bother doing that? It's not totally necessary. I mean, I know what I can do. I'm a brilliant strategist. I'm super intelligent. And I'm an amazing warrior. So as I look out, I know what my resources are. I know what the kingdom needs. I can pretty much sort it out. Let's go practical. I can lead this nation fine. I don't need to consult God through the Ark of the Covenant. Is it true? Well, obviously he did. How did that work out? Well, at the end of his reign, nothing changed. As a matter of fact, it might as well have not even had a leader because we didn't go anywhere. So most of us run our lives and we'll ask, hey, why don't I pray more? Well, you don't pray more because it's not important. If it's important, you'd pray more. Uh, why don't I get involved in this? Because it doesn't matter. Why don't I engage with church or why don't I serve or why don't I go on missions? Because it's not important. Because it was important, you do it. Because you look out and you estimate it's not necessary for what I'm doing. I mean, I'm looking out at my life and things are going just fine and I pretty much have a pattern. So it's not necessary. But David looked at it differently. He said, as a life of worship, I'm not interested in what I can accomplish. I'm interested in what God can accomplish. And if I'm going to involve him in the process, I need to do something different that doesn't seem to matter to me right now, but I think it's important. Does that make sense? Different way of living. All the assembly agreed to do so. And now we're back in Samuel. 
And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, also known as Kiriath Jerim, which is 10 miles away from Jerusalem, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on, Chronicle says above, the cherubim. Okay, everybody remember the gold box? Okay, the gold box, it was acacia wood overlaid with gold, super heavy gold lid, hammered out solid pieces of gold angels, cherubim with their wings outstretched towards the center. Inside that gold box was a few special items. The budding staff of Aaron that God showed that Aaron's lineage would be the priesthood, that's in there. A jar of manna about the cool, amazing miracle provision that God did in the desert, that's in there. Ten Commandments copy, that's in there. Now, nobody's supposed to open it or look inside or anything like that. As a matter of fact, you can't touch it. Everybody remember you can't touch it? We're all clear on that. You can't touch it. Uh, it had rings on the outside of it that were gold that you what? You slide the poles through and then you carry it, right? We all remember this. Pretty cool looking box. Now, we don't know where it is. It's all lost. Well, at this time, it hasn't been where it needed to be for 100 years. It's been off kind of in the side somewhere and nobody's utilizing it appropriately. Israel really messed up with it. They tried to use it as a magic talisman. Do you remember that? They were like, oh, if we have this, we'll win the battle. And then they lost and the ark got stolen by the Philistines. The Philistines ended up giving it back because everything went bad. Do you remember those stories? All right. Well, now it's back in Israeli hands and they now want to bring it back home. Okay, sounds like a great plan. So here's how it went. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house, out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, his grandson, and Ahio, his grandson, the sons, that's a loose term in the Bible, that means descendants of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Now they were driving it, meaning the oxen were pulling it on a cart. They were not doing the Wells Fargo, yeah, they were not on top of it. It was the, you watch the front, I'll watch the back, right? All right. Uh, they were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ohio went before the Ark. All right, real quick show of hands. This is not an embarrassment factor. This is just l- legitimate. Uh, how many have never studied this story in depth before? Anybody? Okay, good amount of you. Now, as so far, is there anything wrong with this? It sounds pretty awesome. We're going to get the Ark back. So what we want to do is we want to go get it down there. Let's make sure it's protected and secure. Let's get it back up there. All of Israel's gathering down together, and we're going to do this the right way yeah okay spoiler alert ready someone dies because of what they just did why because they didn't do it right anybody have a problem so far with how they're doing it it sounds legitimate their hearts are all in the right place it seems like everybody's ready to go someone's gonna die today huh intriguing the heart is there but the method is not This is going to challenge our theology because the church over the last few decades has tried to fix something wrong in the Christian community. For years in the past, God was removed from everyone. So a big movement came in, a lot of times it actually happened around the 60s and 70s, of this idea that you can have a personal relationship with God. We would say phrases like, come as you are, right? That's a big theme. And it started connecting everybody to realizing that God is the Abba Father, the very close daddy relationship. Um, If you attend this church for any length of time, you've heard me say things like, 
It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. You're going to hear me say that over and over and over. Why? Because I'm trying to bend and focus primarily on one aspect of God to try to get us to go that direction because most people do not interact with God on a personal basis. But is that the total picture? No, it's not. I've given a slanted view. Is it all about the heart? These guys, everyone has their hearts perfect, it's in the right place, and someone will die because of the method. That is not something we're used to. What do you do with that? How do you factor that into your theology? Why aren't people dying today? Just because Jesus Christ died on the cross and we live under grace and God isn't zapping everybody that does something wrong, does that mean that God likes it? Does method matter? How you worship? Apparently it does. Verse 6. And David and all the house of Israel, they're making merry before the Lord, which I don't know how to make merry, but that, it just, I, that's a dumb phrase. I don't like that phrase. They're making merry, yay, merry, merry, before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. All right, what do we notice about those instruments? Now, you may not know what they all are, but they're mostly large cymbal clashing sounds. A castanet, kind of a hand cymbal, cymbal, bong, you know, that kind of stuff. What do we know about those noises? If we were to use all those on stage, what kind of noise would it create? Now, there are some instruments that are contained. There are some instruments that denote seriousness. So we're all going to make a soundtrack, right? We're going to make a soundtrack. Somebody just passed away. We're now going to do the soundtrack for it. Do you do the ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Do you use cymbals? No, you don't. You use cello, right? There's contained music. There's quiet music, solemn music. This is not that. This is the everything's loud. It's uncontained. You can't control the sounds of it. It rings out. Everybody's playing off each other, and it's going ballistic. It is a rejoicing, super loud, go-crazy party concept. We got that? All right. That's what's happening here. And it says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. All right, now we need a map. All right, Gary, can you throw up a map? I got a new toy this week and I want to use it. Okay. Here's a map of Israel. You guys ready for this? Remember I told you that when something is impressive, it's hard to restrain the worship. Check this out. I want to show you my new pointer. You ready to be amazed? Watch this. Whoa-bam! Whoa! What's up? Whoa, check that out. That's pretty awesome. All right, you don't have a pointer like that, do you? No, you don't. Why? Because I asked for a pointer and Brian brought me one that would melt someone's face. Look at that. I don't know if you can see it. Look, you can't even read the words. Okay. <laughs> this is a superpower, all right? Now, just because I can, let's point out. This is now Israel. David's running all of that. The Philistines have been pushed back to this place. Jerusalem's right there in the center. We're going to focus on this area. Gary, hit the next one so I can show him the box that I'm drawing. Look at that. Whoa. That's pretty cool too, huh? Um, now we're going to focus on this area and leave this map up for the rest of the time. Gary, go ahead and focus into that. We are merely trying to bring the ark from Abinadab's house down to Jerusalem. That is 10 miles. We have already gone about nine and a half miles in our journey with the cart, and we're going down, and we're right there. Almost got there. Something goes bad. Someone dies. Drag. Look at the next line. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, or Chidon, Chronicle says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error of putting out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. Whoa, that's a buzzkill. That'll shut down your party real fast. Wait, what just happened? All right, let's play the scenario again. We all, as a church, want to go get the Ark of the Covenant. We have a couple people whose job it is to make sure that the Ark is safe. They lead it out. They're riding it on a wagon. We're going down the 10 miles. We've gone nine and a half miles, and one of the oxen stumbles, right? And the Ark is about to pitch over and fall in the dirt. Now, we don't know what's going to happen if it falls over. I mean, it could knock the lid off. Then are we looking in the lid? Does it mess up the box? Does it bend the gold? How are we going to fix it? The other thing is, you don't want God's golden box stuck in the dirt. That's humiliating. That You're all there. It's a big, huge party because we're bringing the gold box. Don't let the gold box fall. So what's going to be your instinctual reaction? Catch the box. That's what we do. If the box is about to fall over, stick your hand out and stop the box from falling. Isn't that the right thing to do? Apparently not. <laughs> Guy reaches out, touches the box, dies instantly. I don't think that stopped the box from falling. What, what's, what's happening here? Uh, may I suggest this? And this is not in the Bible. This is my opinion. You ready? I think an angel pushed the cow. The cow was framed. The cow was doing fine until an angel stuck his foot out and tripped the cow. Why? Well, we almost got there. Everything seemed to be going pretty well. And then the oxen stumbled. Really? It went nine and a half miles and couldn't go the last one. All right. Tips over. God touches it. He dies. God said, don't touch my stuff. Who killed Uzzah? And you go, well, God killed Uzzah. All right. Should this have ever been an issue? No. Why? How do you carry it? With the poles by hand. How do we know that? Oh, I don't know, because it was written multiple times in the Old Testament. You don't put it on a cart. Why do we not know this? If you're going to go pick up the box, don't you think you want to look at the instructions? Who wasn't paying attention? David, whose idea was it to bring it there? David, shouldn't David have got the right priests in place to know exactly how to carry the ark? Because Moses wrote it down on multiple occasions. Don't put it on a cart. Why would they put it on a cart then? I don't know, because a number of years prior to that, the Philistines put it on a cart and ran it back to them. A new cart, just like they did. Where are they taking their method of worship from? Oh, the pagan guys. Really? You are duplicating what non-believing pagans are doing for your God. Okay, now we, I don't want to push this too far, but I just want you to think about this, chew on this. In our methods of worship, how much have we duplicated and looked over after and tried to examine the world to see how we should do it, and we're learning from them? Doesn't that seem kind of silly? If we're going to talk about God, shouldn't we follow a godly pattern and not follow a pagan system? It would make more sense for us to do what God asks us to do. So we need to chase that down. But the guy's heart is good. 
As a matter of fact, he was doing it to protect God's stuff. Doesn't matter, you're dead. How do we wrestle with that? Method clearly matters. There's consequence to wrong worship. Now, God doesn't always do this, but in the Old Testament, mostly because he was setting things up, he would do these dramatic statements to tell people what he really wanted and didn't want. He didn't do them all the time. It's not like everybody died that did that, right? Although I think everybody did die that did that. (laughs) Shot my own analogy. Why isn't he killing us when we worship wrong? Uh, No, he didn't kill everybody that worshipped wrong, doesn't continue to kill everybody, but that, like I said, that doesn't mean he likes it. We need to learn from their mistakes, and even though we have grace, doesn't mean that we can close our eyes. We need to pay attention that how we worship matters. All right, let's dive into the next piece, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord burst forth against Uzzah, and the place is called, he burst forth against Uzzah to this day. I love the way they name stuff. What should we do? God killed that guy. Let's call it God killed that guy. All right. Why is David angry? Is David angry? I hope David is angry because he got busted. I hope David is angry because God exposed the fact that he did it wrong. I hope he's angry. I I, I hope he's angry for the right reasons because if he is angry at God, he is completely out of line. He has misplaced all his anger. If he's really mad and going, God, I can't believe you killed that guy. Whose fault is that? He already told you how to do it. You violated his direction. You did not do it the way you're supposed to do it. And then someone dies. What, it's God's fault? I hope he's angry for the right reasons. Doesn't say. And David was angry because the Lord burst forth against him. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. That's a re-rack of awe and respect. God shut down the whole party and said, back up, do it again. You did it wrong. I don't like it. Now, when we look at that, I need to go back again and correct some of our theology. We look at God when something like this happens and we go, you're a gift snob. Anybody know what a gift snob is? You might be one of them. Here's a gift snob. Whenever you get a present, you look at it and go, hmm, and analyze it and go, I don't need one of those. And you hand it aside. That's a gift snob. Or this is not good enough for me, right? Now, we know that. Now, we always try to say it in nice terms, or at least when they've gone home. When we say, well, I don't don't want to need this, as opposed to saying, wow, somebody gave me a gift. Regardless if it works with me or not, I should be thankful for that gift, right? So we look at God as a gift snob. We say, well, it's almost like a little kid came up to their parents, and you all know what I'm talking about, and they made them an ashtray. Anybody remember making your parents an ashtray? Why children were encouraged to build ashtrays growing up is very odd to me. They're all ugly, and they're almost useless, right? So you make an ashtray, and you're like, here, Dad, and your dad doesn't even smoke. So you hand him an ashtray, and he's going to look at it and go, what would I do with that? This is ugly. What do you... And we look at God like that, where we all give him our best in our worship, and he looks at it and goes, not good enough, right? That's not right. Remember, God is not denying them because they didn't try hard enough. He's denying them because it was inappropriate, and if he allows that to continue, bad patterns begin, and we have trouble. God corrects forms of worship because it allows us to grow and live. Uzzah ultimately got killed so that millions others would not. God had to reset and re-rack. Stop doing it that way. We do it different. I already told you, don't put it on a cart. All right? It says, 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, that guy's later mentioned as a Levite, so he's, a, he's an Israelite guy. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You know why I love that story? Because here's what David was doing. He was reacting like we react to everything. He was whining and falling apart and throwing a pity party. Okay, so I try to go get your box, right? And then you don't even like the way that we get your box. So then you get all mad and you start killing people and ruin the whole party. Well, fine. You know what? Then I can't even bring it into my house. So if that's the way that you're going to act, no, I don't want your ark. And no, I can't do that. What? Now I'm the king and all of a sudden you're going to kill me just because I do something wrong. God, I don't even want to do that stuff. And whine, 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 whine. What's so funny is the next story says once he finds out that he's blessing the guy who has it, he's like, no, now I want it. The reason why I love that story so much is that's us. We let our pendulum swing all the way to the opposite side. First, we're all gung-ho about doing a God thing, and then God doesn't do what we expect, and God expects something else, and we throw this huge tantrum. Fine, God, now you'll what? Nothing's good enough for you, and blah, blah, blah. Fine, I'm leaving the church, and I'm going to do this, and, and you're all your people are stupid, and they're all mean, and blah, blah. And we just explode and run away into the world. What's so great about it is God just goes, you done yet? I'll wait you out. Like a good parent. They're throwing a tantrum, ah, screaming on the ground. And the parent just goes, are you done yet? I got all day. All right, now, can you stand up? Oh, no, we're still going. All right. Okay, how about now? God will wait you out. He's not going to play your game. He's not going to bend just because you're all upset and, oh, it's ridiculous how you're acting, God. Who do you think you are? You're yelling at God? He dictates how it goes. And he'll go, fine. You want to overreact? Go ahead. When you show back up, now you're ready to play? Because I want to go do some stuff together. Are you done being a Yahoo? All right. Says next. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all his belongings because of the ark of God. So David wants to go get it. Chronicles adds this. Now David had built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Now, the real tent of meeting, where it was supposed to be originally, is down in Gibeon. He didn't move that. He built a new one for whatever reason. And David gathered together two priests and 868 Levites. Those are the guys that were told to carry the ark. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, ceremonially prepare yourselves, guys. We're going to go do it right this time. You and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord, our God, broke out against us. Are you blaming other people? He's like, man, you guys blew that first one. That was embarrassing. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. Method of worship. Hmm. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord. And David said that no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So David went, clothed in a robe of fine linen like the other leaders, and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord, after they had gone six steps, probably just the first six steps, 
he sacrificed seven bulls and seven fattened rams because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now that's the phrase we remember, yeah? Oh, we all like that part of the story. David danced before the Lord with all his might. That brings up two points. Number one, what does it mean to dance before the Lord? Fair question. I don't know if I've ever done that. First of all, I'm 6'3 and white, so that might have something to do with it. Talk about bad method. Uh, David was a lot shorter than me. He probably had more groove as well. Dancing before the Lord, what does that mean? Well, some of us have familiarity with dancing as an expression of worship or dancing as an expression of life. The rest of us don't know. So as you're dancing before the Lord, it's this idea of abandon, of going out before the Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you dance because you're bummed out or do you dance because you're joyful? I've never heard of anybody going, hey, you guys, you want to go dancing and just be like depressed? Do you guys just want to like go hang out somewhere and just sway? No, you weirdo. Why, why would I do that? No, dancing is always an expression of joy or rejoicing or going ballistic and crazy. This is a rejoicing issue. And it says he danced before the Lord with all his might. What does that mean? Does that mean like every move was dramatic? Like, whoa, you know, you're like, what? What What was that? He's doing the robot. You're, you know, it means he's all in. It means that his whole heart is in on it and that he's all about God. And it was abandoned going, I don't care anymore what people think. This is my time with the Lord. Where is that in our worship? Now, granted, David was doing it actually for God. Too many of us do stuff for looks. We do stuff, even we know in a Christian circle, if you can look more abandoned, you look cool, right? I mean, we have so many mixed motives about why we do what we do. But where is the time when it actually is about God and our abandon? We would never know. Here's the thing. Most of us say stuff like this. Well, I'm, I'm that way in my heart. Okay, the only reason why we know David's heart in this story is because you could see it outside. Where's the outward expression? Is there any outward expression during our times of worship? David's dancing and going out in front of everybody ends up getting tons of heat for it, actually. But he was actually doing it appropriately. We don't tend to do it appropriately. It says, and David was wearing a linen ephod, that's a priestly attire, I don't know if that's appropriate or not. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed He-Man. I just had to throw that in there, that's pretty awesome. Um, Do you guys realize that one of the first worship leaders of Israel was the master of the universe? It was He-Man. And ours is named Jake, which is far less impressive. And of his brothers Asaph, which you can recognize from the Psalms, and others, Chenaniah, the leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. Great. What did we just read? And David instituted a worship band. That's what you just saw. God instituted a worship band. I don't know all the reasons if the way we're doing church is the right way we're doing church. I get it. The postmodern movement. I don't know if we should do this. Do we really need preaching like that? Do we really need a worship band? Okay, for whatever reason, God instituted a worship band. And here was his rules. Number one, you need people that do it specifically really, really well. You have to be excellent. He ends up talking about that later on. It has to be great. Uh, number two, he wrote down right there, 
uh, I want you to be really loud. Now, it's interesting. We all go, no, 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 it's honoring to God to be quiet. No, it's not. Come on. It's got to fit the mood, right? Sometimes it just says it. I want you to be loud, crazy loud, irritatingly loud. All right, well, that's partly how they did it. He also said this, allow the guy to lead it who knows what he's doing. That's pretty fair. Here's what's intriguing. A lot of us come from this idea of it's all about the heart. And so we go, well, anybody should be in the worship team because it's about the heart, right? Hold on. Whether someone's excellent or not has nothing to do with what honors God because whether you play well or don't play well, you're honoring to God. That's not the point. That's not the question. The question is, they have to be excellent to minimize distraction. That's the only reason. Why does the team have to be excellent? Because if they're not, we have a hard time. You go, what are you talking about? Well, here's my point. Let's use my job for an analogy. Let's say anyone that had a good heart needs to come up and preach. And they come up here and don't know anything about public speaking. They go, um, uh, where was I? Um, okay. Uh, how uncomfortable are you? Everyone just lost it. Nobody's been paying attention anymore. There's no flow to it. Okay, in the same way, it's not about one person plays and God likes it, one person plays and God doesn't like it. That is not true. God loves it all. It's an issue of distraction. They cannot distract. And if somebody is not able to play at a level, that makes it very difficult for everyone else. That's the only reason why that stuff comes up. I know that for some of us, we look and we go, well, no, no, no. We should just be able to do it because I like it. Uh, not so. Okay. All right, we move on. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, was shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing and rejoicing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Why? Why? I don't know. Do you remember the last couple of weeks when I shared about her story, how much she's been treated horribly by men? Anybody remember that part of the story? She loved David and then he, got, he had to go off into hiding because her dad tried to kill him. Broke up that marriage. She ends up getting a guy named Paul T.L. He ends up loving her. David steals her back for political gain. She loses her husband who's crying over her. She keeps getting ripped out of marriages. Nobody ever treats her appropriately. And we wonder why she's bitter at David. I don't think she likes David at all. I think she hates his guts. So it's not a wonder why she despised him. Now, she's wrong in this scenario, but I can understand why she's bitter. Absolutely. And because of her bitterness, she reads everything he does inappropriately. That's not fair. So look what it says. And they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. When David finished the offering and burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord of God of Israel, led by Asaph. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and departed each to his house. And David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the lord to minister regularly before the ark as each day required constant full-time job 
And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers before the tabernacle of the Lord to do all that is written in the law of the Lord, as well as the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Nice, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants as female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Well, David came home, mountaintop experience. He's all fired up for the Lord. Wham! Just gets slaughtered when he walks through the door. What is their challenge? Nice. Okay, Mr. Cocky, what, you're just going to do all the things that you want to do, right? So you're going to go out there and you're dancing. First of all, you're not even good at it. Second of all, you're out there embarrassing us. I don't think you realize what you do for a living, dude. You're the king. You wear kingly robes. You look good. We are about looking good. I'm a queen. I know we have a whole bunch of them around here. I take my job seriously. I am being appropriate in front of everybody. You are out there acting like an idiot, flying around, dancing around, doing whatever you do. That does not befit a king. Listen, man, you need to watch your appearance. You're going to lose respect if you act like that. And quite frankly, here's the reason why I think you did it. I think you did it because the girls can't see your ripped pecs underneath your robe. So you got to all dress down and be all crazy so everyone can see how good looking you are. And you're trying to do it to get their attention. It's not about God for you. It's all about you. Well, that's pretty rough. Is she right? No, she's not. But that's all she can see. The way we view people tends to skew how we interpret information. David won't stand for it. Here's what he says. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Really? You think I did that for other people? Then you don't know me at all. It was before the Lord that I did that. Who, by the way, chose me above your father. Your dad Saul. Where's he? Oh, that's right. He's gone. Guess what? I'm his replacement. Above all your household, he appointed me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet even more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. Girl, you think that's the worst I can do? I'm going to humiliate you. Man, you didn't even see the top of it, right? I will go crazy for God. There is a time I may end up being a blithering idiot. I end up sobbing, bawling in front of everybody, because why? I'm into God, and I'm going to react like that. And you're all worried about appearances. You know what? Forget that. That was a God thing. It had nothing to do with other people. Oh, by the way, the female servants of whom you've spoken that you think I'm trying to get their attention, by them, obviously not by you, I will be held in honor. They get it. What's your problem? And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Why? Is that because David backed away from her? I don't know, maybe. Is it because God cursed her for her reaction? I don't know, maybe. I do know that she was never going to have a child. She was never going to have a son. How do we know that? Because God cursed the line of Saul and said, you will never have one on the throne. And if a child is born and you have the daughter of Saul and King David having a child, regardless of when they're born, they're going to be the next one on the throne. That was never going to happen. Okay, so let's close it up. What's the point? God wants to be worshipped. But God doesn't want our leftovers. God doesn't want us to throw them a bone. God doesn't want this hand-me-down. 
God wants worship fit for a king. Does it matter how we do it? Yeah, it kind of does. Does it only matter? No, of course not. Does there need to be a balance? Sure there does. Is it more about the heart? Yes. But we don't just throw everything out and just say it doesn't matter. It does matter. God is not going to allow our attitudes to dictate what he will and will not receive. And when we throw our little fits, he'll wait us out. And then when you re-rack, he'll go, all right, now can you please listen to me? If you don't do this right, it's going to hurt you. I need you to do this right. So what we do in the church, because we don't know all the right answers. So what we do as leadership in the church is try to chase after what we believe God wants, what he expects, what he demands, and worship is no different. Are we worshiping rightly? I don't know. I don't know. That's an individual question, maybe. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for guiding us through your word. And, Lord, we don't know how it all works, obviously. Um, We're kind of making it up as we go along and hoping that it's honoring to you. Um, I just pray, Lord, that you would be pleased. And if you don't like something, Lord, help us to change it. If you, if you see that our hearts are distant, please show us that. If you believe that our methods are inappropriate, please reveal it to us because we don't want to continue doing that which is wrong. We want to do the right thing. Above all, Father, we just ask that you would show us how you can be honored and praised the best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.